3: That was perfect, Vitor Hello! It's Monday. It's 1202. This is what doesn't kill you, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are the Heritage Radio Network, a listener-supported network broadcasting over 35 food shows. If you weren't paying attention to the drop before this, and by the way, I just want to give a shout out to my friends at Chef's Collaborative. Thanks so much for sponsoring my show um, and many others, of course. Uh, I am a card-carrying member. And in fact, my guest today was also uh, a member of Chef's Collaborative. In fact, he may have been a board member at one point. We will ask when he gets on on the line. But for starters, we're going to go through the joys and sorrows of this week. I'm going to keep it short because I have so much to say because guess who's on today? It's Tom Philpot, my favorite guest of all time. Tom is a correspondent for Mother Jones. Um, has written extensively for uh, all kinds of publications about agriculture. He's just literally one of my very favorite guests, and I'm so happy to welcome him back as this is his first outing for 2017. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about. But like I said, first we have a few joys and sorrows to cover, um, and and they really are all about, um, well, mostly about Monsanto. Now I don't really have terribly strong feelings about GMO crops. I know I've expressed that opinion. I don't think they're poisonous. I don't think they're going to kill us. What I do think is that they are a failed technology and I also think that um, Monsanto uh, et al, all of these big agri companies are, um, it's just a bad idea to have all your seeds um, sort of lodged in one basket, if you know what I mean. When only four companies basically are producing the world's food basket then you have a problem. So that's why I don't like Monsanto. But it turns out, as you'll hear in a moment, um, that there is more to this story than I had originally thought. In any case, a court has tentatively... Sorry about the snuffling, by the way. I have the worst cold possibly ever in my lifetime. Um, So I will probably take a few sneezing and coughing breaks. I've done my best to take plenty of medication so that doesn't happen. But just in case, please forgive me for the grossness. Anyway... A court in California has tentatively ruled that California can require Monsanto to put a cancer warning on their Roundup products. But, of course, it is a tentative ruling. And, of course, Monsanto has sued California in retaliation. But it is a beginning. But then today... I was uh, perusing the trades, as I am wont to do, and one of my favorite um, daily, uh, daily briefings is the FERN, the Food and Environmental uh, Reporting Network. They put out something called Ag Insider, which is an aggregation of um, information about uh, food, agriculture, etc., put together by the um, excellent Chuck Abbott. And there is a totally chilling article about how the EPA—that's our Environmental Protection Agency—essentially colluded with Monsanto to keep Roundup legal. Roundup, of course, is glyphosate, and it is so widely used not only in commercial farming but even on your very own lawn. <laughs> you know, like it has been marketed extensively to consumers for home use as well as for agricultural, uh, industrial agricultural use. So <clears throat> that's really quite alarming. But anyway, so the point is, is that there is. Um, This letter that came out, um, it was in 2013, one of the senior toxicologists at the EPA said in a letter to the now retired deputy director of the agency, a man named Jess Jess Rowland, uh, it is, quote, it is essentially certain that glyphosate causes cancer, which is a direct contradiction of the EPA's 1991 ruling that it was completely safe. And moreover... And okay, so the quote was just that it causes cancer, but wait until you hear what she says after that. Moreover, the letter goes on to say the following, and again, this is a direct quote, for once in your life, listen to me and don't play your political conniving games with the science to favor the registrants, referring to Monsanto. She wrote, for once, do the right thing and don't make decisions based on how it affects your bonus. Okay, so this is coming out now as a consequence of a class action lawsuit being brought against the EPA in which the plaintiffs allege that using Roundup uh, causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and various other cancers, all of which has been these rumors have been swirling. Um, the World Health Organization actually upheld that last year. Monsanto has been fighting tooth and nail to um, to squash that, uh, and you know claiming that people are cherry picking studies and so forth. But I think at this point the jury is no longer out on whether or not uh, glyphosate is a safe chemical to use, um, and we do use it so widely. And by the way, many other countries have already banned Roundup or glyphosate. Um, evidently. They don't need to wait to see if it is as toxic as has been claimed. Those countries are actually on the side of their citizens rather than their corporate overlords, uh, un- unlike the United States. And strangely enough, some of these companies, are, countries are quite surprising. Uh, they include Colombia, El Salvador, Sri Lanka, Bermuda and the Netherlands. Uh, have all banned the sale of Roundup and other herbicides that contain glyphosate. Meanwhile, Argentina, Brazil, and Germany are considering bans, and France banned their use completely in home gardens. In other words, consumers cannot use, purchase or use glyphosate in their home gardens on their own personal vegetables that they consume, although clearly it's probably being used on other larger crops. But still, I mean, is that not so telling? I mean, it just blows my mind. I The woman's, her name is Marion Crawford, by the way, in case you want to find her send her a letter of congratulations. Um, I think she may too have left the EPA at this point, but um, it was just, that just blew my mind, that letter. I couldn't believe. And it just shows that maybe Scott Pruitt <laughs> is on the right track <laughs> because if the EPA is colluding with companies like Monsanto, I'm not sure they're really doing their job, and maybe we shouldn't be paying for them. So, And then finally, in the category of, if I can't see it, it doesn't actually exist, the administration, that is the Trump administration, is proposing to cut at least 17% from the operating budget of NOAA. NOAA is our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and it is the principal scientific tool that we use that charts climate change, weather patterns, and so on, And those cuts would mostly affect research, education, and grants. Now, how's that for a piece of good news? What you don't know can't hurt you, can it? (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Um, and lastly, which I wish I didn't write this down, but I did want to say that we uh, do have an outbreak of a highly pathogenic avian flu going on in the state of Tennessee. Um, this could have major implications. It depends on how successful they are in containing it. A huge flock of chickens has already been killed. Tom might, might, might actually know about, more about this, and I'll ask him. Um, but anyway, uh, that is... Um, that is the uh, joys and sorrows. And I, I want to wind that up by saying, um, could our situation in the United States be any more desperate at this point? I mean, we are witnessing a pompadoured Yahoo and his grotesque corporate cronies take apart this nation. In fact, I'm because I'm sick, I'm a little weepy all the time. And I was literally brought to tears thinking about this on the subway right now, too. Anyway. In another three years, we won't even have to worry about whether or not voting rights are available to the rest of the population because we will have our own dictatorship problem solved. And with that, we will go to a commercial break and we'll be right back with the wonderful Tom Philpott. We're going to talk all about the Secretary of Agriculture and what is going on in the new administration vis-a-vis our food supply. So stay tuned.
1: This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters
3: Yeah, that's right, folks. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, by the way. If you ever want to listen to our archived programs, uh, of which there are over 35, I highly recommend them all. Um, but of course, mine is my favorite, naturally. So I hope you'll listen to mine more than anything else. Um, and give us money, too. So today, we are going to be talking with one of my very favorite guests. His name is Tom Philpot. For those of you who have not heard an episode with Tom in the past, um, he is the food and agricultural uh, co- correspondent for Mother Jones, where he writes the weekly Food for Thought blog online, and he contributes features and editorials to the bi-monthly print magazine. He was also a co-founder in 2004 of Maverick Farms, a small organic vegetable farm and center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruces in North Carolina, and he serves on the advisory board there. He has also worked as a professional journalist for over 20 years um, and is currently based in Austin, Texas. In addition to his numerous appearances uh, as a moderator and presenter, Tom, at you know various co- conferences and whatnot, um, and you should always try to find um, find them in your area because he's just such a wonderful, uh, knowledgeable speaker. Uh, Tom also hosts, you can listen to him a lot, actually. Um, he hosts Mother Jones' newly uh, well, not that new, um, The Bite, which is a weekly podcast um, which includes Tom, Philpot, uh, Kyra Butler, and Maddie Oatman. And then also he does a podcast, a bi-weekly podcast called The Secret Ingredient with the eminent Raj Patel and Rebecca McEnroy, um, and that comes through Austin's public national public radio, to- radio station, KUT, but it is also available on iTunes, and I highly, highly recommend it. So, Tom, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for coming on today, especially with a little bit short notice.
4: Thanks for having me, Katie. Always a pleasure to be here.
3: Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you, my friend. It really is. And it's been such a long time since we've been able to talk. I mean, we have so much to cover here. So we're going to we're going to get right off to the races here. So let's start. Um, let's just start with labor and immigration because um, that was something that the you know Trump administration really just went out of the gate with a bang, not a whimper um, and it was reported in the New York Times that um, that, you know, the big ag concerns in California, who ponied up big for uh, Trump's campaign, gave him a lot of money and supported his campaign. But they somehow failed to notice that he planned to deport their workforce. So I wonder <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to deconstruct what exactly is, is or could happen if the new and improved immigration uh, executive order sends ag workers back to Mexico and Central America. What do you anticipate will be the fallout from that?
4: Oh, well, I laugh because it's not funny at all, um, but it's a sort it of laugh, laugh or cry kind of situation. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I did a lot of reporting on Trump in the campaign and exactly mm-hmm. what message he was sending to the ag community, um, and he sent a very effective one. Um, you know, the basic idea, well, you know, he got a lot of, you know, state ag secretaries and conservative governors from red states to be on his ag advisory committee. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of, I think, helped convince, you know, the rank-and-file that, you know, he was going to make America great again for uh, for farming. And, you know, it was counterintuitive because one of his messages was we're going to, you know, kick the immigrants in the teeth, uh, the very workforce, the very labor force that the industry relies on. Um And, you know, the other – but the way they sort of soft-pedaled it was, I think, pretty interesting. What they said was, look, your biggest problem as farmers is regulation. You're over-regulated at every step of the way. Uh, The EPA is, you know, coming to your farm to shut it down, (laughs) and we're going to get the EPA after back. And. That and then in terms of immigration and trade, which which we can also get into, which is also oh. really important to the big ad community. Um, you know, the idea was, oh well, we'll talk to him about those things. We'll you know, he we'll convince him that you know he he wants to only doubt criminal immigrants and he'll leave our immigrants alone.
3: Yeah, the ones we um, exploit.
4: And so it was a sort of, like, under-the-table kind of message, mm-hmm. like, oh, don't worry about that. He, he understands you. He's not like these other politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he, you hear him thundering against immigrants, don't worry about your own workforces. Uh, and instead, listen to this message about how he is going to, you know, basically end the regulatory state, and that's really benefit your farm. And I think that message you know, basically took hold. And I think we can get into why it is that such a message uh, resonated maybe more in, in farm country than Hillary Clinton's message. But but that's basically what he did. You know, he never – he he, he based, like he said, he came into office promising to crack that into immigration, and he has made good on that promise so far. So that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone – um But as you know, in places where, you know, farmers rely heavily on immigration, people are freaking out yeah. and they're saying, you know, what's he doing they're very surprised that he's making good in his promise
3: well i think that they he, i i my guess is, is that most of these people thought when he talked about immigrants he was talking about muslims he wasn't talking about their happy you know <laughs> their happy fruit pickers you know well <laughs> i yes don't and no, you think
4: because you know let's not forget how he started off his campaign he started off his campaign uh it with a really kind of um you know, bare knuckled xenophobic speech about Mexican immigrants. Ooh. You know, they send us mm-hmm. their rapists. They send us their killers. That's true. I forgot. And that. then he said, "Oh, you know, some of them might be good people." Uh, and so there, there has been, there was from the start of his campaign. Um, it wasn't really just Muslims he was talking about. You know, he created this bogeyman of. You know, as he calls them bad ombres scolding yeah. about unbelievable uh, so 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 Mexican immigrants were in uh, in the crosshair from the beginning you're you're and absolutely right about that, yeah, yeah, so really, there is you know no one no one should be surprised, but i I think people thought oh well his his rhetoric is just overheated in that topic, and he'll he'll chill out of course, in outside of farm country, there is a significant part of his support that is cheering the on, that, you know, think, oh, well, he's right about the bad hombres, and so we need to kick the immigrants in the teeth. Um, and I, I think he is a bit beholden to that, that crowd, uh, without which he wouldn't be in office.
3: Well, for sure. But let's talk about what would actually happen. I mean, what will happen if he manages to decimate the agricultural workforce that is largely comprised of uh, Central American and Mexican immigrants. Like, what does that mean to us in terms of consumers? I mean, are we looking at crops failing? Uh, you know, lying in the field unpicked. Are we looking at uh, you know restaurant uh, strugg- restaurants struggling to find workers? I mean, to me, it's like from all the way from farm to fork, this is just a gigantic disaster in the making. So, what what is what do yeah. you think is the economic impact I, of this?
4: I think you know we're we're about to find out. Uh, but one thing that we should remember is that sort of talk of cracking down on immigration and talk of cracking down on undocumented workers coming from Mexico has been going on for a while. Mm. Um, and there were major crackdowns in the two thousands. And you know we, we can look at a case study uh, in Georgia, where they have a pretty strong uh, fruit and vegetable farming sector. Mm-hmm. They, they In 2011, just after Sonny Purdue <laughs> left office, yeah. um, they put in, into place uh, a kind of Arizona-like package of anti-immigration uh, laws, mm-hmm. uh, making it easier to, you know, pull people, people over and, de- and demand documentation on their, on their citizenship status mm-hmm. and, you know, lock them up and send them home if they didn't have those. And you know what happened in Georgia was that you know you know how this works. It's a very seasonal thing, and right. so you got a, a large group of Mexican workers and uh, Central American workers in Florida in the winter. And as the um, as the weather warms up and spring hits, uh, you know hits um, southeast, they start moving up uh, into the harvest in places like Georgia. Right. And in 2011, um, at the start of the growing season, like in April they basically didn't show up. Um, they were terrified. Mm-hmm. And fruit and vegetable growers lost uh, something like a billion dollars that oh, year wow. uh, from un- unharvested crops. And, you know, so the the kind of atmosphere that Trump is creating right now is kind of a nationalization of that, where, you know, he is mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote unshackled ICE, which is the Immigration uh, Control and Enforcement Service, the right. sort of immigration cops, yeah. he's, he's really sort of emboldened them to start, you know, harassing people, checking documentation, and it's bringing um, that kind of fear nationwide. Um, and so, you know, what I think ultimately, if this situation really does continue, I think what you see is you do see a rise in food prices, um, you know, directly based on higher labor costs. Yeah. Uh, Who knows Uh, what the Farm Bureau says is five to six percent that, you know, if there is this sort of nasty, if if this policy uh, maintains itself and really kind of um, gets into place, you're you're looking at a a five to six percent jump. What else I think you're going to see is a real push to more mechanization in the field. And, you know, California already has done. You know, the the, the uh, farm labor unions got got pretty strong in the 70s, and one mm-hmm. of the responses was to mechanize as much as possible. Yep. And so, you know, basically California's got a massive harvest of canned tomatoes or tomatoes for processing in general mm-hmm. that is pretty much all mechanized because, you know, it doesn't have to be pretty tomatoes because they're not right. going into the pyramid of the grocery store. They're going into a, a cannery. And and so, you know, you've got this, you know, massive industry of tomatoes in California that are already mechanized, and I think we're going to see more investments in those kinds of technologies.
5: Yes. And,
4: you know, the other thing is that, you know, we already export a huge amount of our fruits and vegetables. I think it's half of, and you know, about a quarter of vegetables. And yeah. a lot of that is because of seasonality, because we demand, you know, tomatoes in in November and December. Um, But I think we can see more, more imports. We can see, you know, more cropland in the United States going into suburban development and, um, and more, you know, importing from, from Mexico. Um, And, you know, we should say that, you know, Katie and your listeners, probably, you know, most of your listeners probably already know this and I know you do that, Farm workers in the United States work under pretty horrible conditions. Absolutely. The pay is very low. The living standards are very low. No
3: protections. And, yeah.
4: yeah, very little protection. And in Mexico, it's even worse. Yeah. Um, in places like Sinaloa and Baja, California, uh, where they have, you know, massive industrial scale production of fruits and vegetables, uh, we, it's very similar to here. They're, they're basically migrants from places like Oaxaca. They don't mm-hmm. speak often don't speak Spanish, so they're not uh, speaking the the sort of lingua franca, uh, and they're completely exploited. And so I think we're going to see, you know, even more production shift down there Mm -hmm. um, if if this holds. Mm -hmm. Now, the other possibility is that um, you know these industries prevail on Trump to chill out on this, um, and, and and we'll see. But there's been no sign of that yet.
3: Right, right. Well, you know we're not fully into. I mean, because I think you know as as you pointed out, this is a seasonal business, and as those crops start coming to fruition or you know come to ripeness and need those workers, I think then you're going to see a lot more pressure uh, from the big growers. Yeah. I would expect. Um, but you know, yeah, it I'm being,
4: really curious to see what
3: happens right. in
4: in the southeast yeah um, yeah in the next in the next month, in places like Georgia, Alabama,
3: well, I'm gonna count on Carolinas. you to keep me up to date, Tom. You are just encyclopedic guy. i i mean, i'm so I'm so admiring of you. I couldn't possibly keep all the information in my tiny head that you are able to summon up at the drop of a hat. But anyway, that's neither well, here nor well, there. Well, the
4: admiration is, the admiration is mutual.
3: <laughs> oh, thank you, Tom. That's really sweet. Um, but as you know, we were just talking about uh, you know uh, these these uh, crops being shifted back out to Mexico, Central America, and so other countries that we will start importing more than we export. Um, and so let's talk for a second about the trade wars that Trump is trying to spin up. So oh, we
4: right. <laughs> excellent, excellent point. Yeah, right. Nice so, segue yeah, there. If, you, uh, you set me up really yeah, well for that. <laughs> let's just let's just back up for a second. So if you're going to terrorize the workforce
3: mm.
4: that this industry relies on, um, and you're not going to do anything to change our appetite for food and vegetables, we are still going to want our grocery stores. Yeah, we are. And we're going to freak out, freak out if they don't. Um, then you are going to, you know, create this opportunity and create this need for more imported fruits and vegetables. But then if you're going to start trade wars with the very, very countries that we, we're going to rely on to produce them, then you're putting yourself into a bit of a box. Okay. And, you know, we don't know how this NAFTA renegotiation renegotiation is going to play out. Uh, we do know that ag is a very important thing on both sides. Yeah. We import a whole lot of our corn to Mexico for the meat industry down there. Right. Um, we rely, they are our number one supplier of fruits and vegetables. Right. And into a trade war, um, you know, they threatened to start buying corn from elsewhere, from Argentina or South sure. Africa, Brazil.
3: I um, mean, South America Brazil... is ramping up their their corn and soy production, you know, as we speak. I mean, they are clear cutting forest just to plant soy. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, uh, you know, and they will gladly take over the you know, when there's that vacuum from the United States, they will gladly take over that particular aspect yeah. of it.
4: And we're already seeing, as you know, corn and soy prices have been in the dirt for at least two years, yeah. and they are, as far as the eye can see. So that's another in another way that Trump is boxed in on this. Um, he's going to be alienating our our trade partners and inspiring uh, the rivals of the U.S. Midwest, as you just said, to plant more corn and soybeans. Yeah, you know he's put he's putting that part of farm country into a deeper hole. And so, yeah, that's an, you know, I kind of think about all of these things as the contradictions of Trumpism. Yes, that he has all these very strongly held beliefs and these you know these positions that he he holds very strongly and he very forcefully gets them out there to his public, but when they they sort of come together into a policy stew, it, um, it it's horrible. It's you know, it's like adding. You know, you're making something to eat, and you want you know you're putting in a, a bunch of vinegar and a <laughs> bunch of cocoa powder and a bunch right. <laughs> and and of so bananas. And, like it, it does not come together. It doesn't cohere right. into a any kind of sensible, recognizable dish, dish. Whatever your politics are,
3: right, right. I know but, it's to me. It's just incredible, and I guess you know. So that it was like it, you, you're boiling it down to the fact that the man literally has no clue about the business of food and agriculture um, on either a national or international scale, and yet he is planning to renegotiate trade deals that, you know, somehow uh, he thinks is going to improve the lot of our farmers um, and make food, pr- food prices go down. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what his ultimate goal is with that. But, you know, in any case, it's clear that he doesn't have a clue, and that's very troubling. Um, right. Yes. Um, I also wanted to say, just I, I want to keep keep moving because we have so much to talk about um, vis-a-vis. Uh, in fact, I'm going to skip this next question about about uh, about trade because I want to to move on. Um, and I'm going to skip my question about Tom Vilsack. But could you believe that he just like <laughs> jumped? right? Talk about the revolving door, right? Tom Vilsack. Know, for those who I don't know, know I,
4: I wrote something about it, and um, yeah, you know, I've I have come under. Some some fire from, some, from from friends who worked in the Obama administration um, that um, I was too hard on Vilsack that the the you know the basically like the, whatever you want to call it the food justice movement or the food sovereignty movement or whatever right. you want to call it was too hard on him he had all these constraints on him he did the best he could oh you know Obama was the best food president ever you know there was, was. obviously some. Some flaws in that, and people like me are, are too hard on him. And then the guy, you know, Vilsack doesn't even—he's not even out of office he did, yet. I was just going to say
3: he didn't even wait until the end of his term. <laughs> no, he jumped. And for people he, who don't he know, he's now—yeah, he's you know, now the CEO of, of the U.S. of uh, the U.S. Dairy Export. Of, yeah, well,
4: I think there was a bit of protest in that. I think he was—he he was mad that Trump um, yeah. was—you know—so so. so n- The USDA, um, so not paying attention to the transition of the USDA.
3: Right, right. That
4: he was like, I'm out of here. And I I respect that.
3: Yeah, me too. But,
4: you know, this, we don't need to get too far into it, but this Dairy Export Council, I mean, this is just industrial, huge dairy. Yeah. And, you know, what it wants is no trade barriers and it wants to be able to dump its. You know, uh, milk protein concentrate or what? You know these yeah, various milk powder
3: essentially components.
4: Right. Yeah, it wants to be able to, to dump them far and wide, and um, and beat the and crap it, out it, it of just dairy farmers. A dignified role yeah. for for someone like Bill Sat. Yeah, I,
3: I, mean, I was horribly disappointed. I really hoped that he would, you know, tr- you know, start leading some kind of group that would actually, you know, do what he said he wanted to do during his tenure as agricultural secretary, which was to raise up the sort of small and medium-sized farmers, you know, the whole know your farmer, know your food thing, and, you know, all the stuff that he and Merrigan worked on together in the first term, uh, first yeah. Obama term, you know, I thought, well, it would be awesome, you know, if this guy who, you know, really showed leadership here. Um, but no, unfortunately, he took the, took the easy way, took the... Took the ugh, I don't know I, it just like I'm a little weepy because I'm uh, quite sick right now and so <laughs> this is the kind yeah. of thing that actually makes me makes tears come to my eyes. It's so disappointing. But anyway, let us move on. I know you reported about that. I really want to talk about Purdue. So we're going to go right to Sonny Purdue because we only have a half an sure. hour left. Um, so, Sonny Purdue, for those of you who haven't really been paying attention to reading up on him, um, Sonny Purdue is our nominee for uh, Agricultural Secretary, head of the USDA. Um, this is a man who held a prayer rally in Atlanta during his governorship to pray for rain while there was a drought <laughs> um, because he doesn't believe in climate change, but he does believe in the power of prayer. Um, and he does believe in the timber industry and is all for cutting down forests and he loves the bass fishing industry as well or or tournament i should say because i mean like who doesn't need their freaking recreation (laughs) right but otherwise he's really not been a great friend to um to the farmer in georgia um and then he had that whole scandal with the American peanut corporation right Stuart Parnell yeah. there was he had he had basically slashed uh, the budget for food inspection in in Georgia and then the peanut corporation uh, you know sent out some um, Salmonella tainted peanut butter and and you know hundreds literally it was 700 and something people got very sick I think nine or ten people died uh, the owner of the corporation Stuart Parnell was sentenced to 28 years in prison which was Absolutely astonishing to me. I mean, I couldn't believe that happened, right?
4: Yeah, it just shows how bad it was.
3: Yes, it was very serious. So, um, but uh, anyway, and then and then I, I saw this Fortune magazine. Actually, I was when I was reading up on him. They, they gave him huge props for for you know aggressively introducing regulations about food safety. But that was of course after the fact that he had already right, destroyed right. the food safety system in Georgia. But how do you think he is going to be in terms of directing agencies like the FSIS and supporting the Food Safety Modernization Act? I mean, these you know food safety issues are ongoing. They they don't disappear just because the administration has changed. So, how, what what do you think we can look forward to in, the, in 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 that sense? And who do you think would be likely to head up FSIS, for example?
4: Well, can we just back up just yes. one second yes, and, and kind of chuckle about how, <laughs> um, if you read Politico every day, mm-hmm. and, and Politico has these reporters in D.C., the word you get is that Sonny Purdue is not getting his calls returned from the Trump administration. Wow. And he has not even; they have not even filed paperwork in the Senate to get him confirmed.
3: No, I and know. No
4: date. Yeah. Uh, and so, Sonny right now is sort of floundering, and the USDA is floundering without a without a director. Right. And let's also recall that weeks and weeks, and I, that I was covering it, and it was just making my head spin. The lurches this way and that that the Trump administration went through to decide who the USDA director was going to be. Yes. And, and basically, it was, you know, people were telling me on the inside, you know, people I know kind of in Washington circles were telling me, well, we think it's going to be this person, but, you know, every, everything's out the window now. There's no coherent signal process where we we know that it's going to be this candidate, whereas in the past, you could tell pretty quickly, well, okay, Obama has settled on Vilsack. Right. Or, you know, Clinton has settled on, on this guy. Those those signals completely broke down, and um, and what you saw was, you know, basically uh, different forces in the administration wanting different things, and so there were you know kind of conventional ag people. Um, there was a big push to get a Hispanic person nominated because um, at that point there had, you know there had been not a single sure. He would be the first president since uh, since Reagan to. You know not appoint a Hispanic person in his first uh, term of office and, and so it was just completely chaotic process, and the chaos continues mm-hmm. they're not um they're, they're not doing the normal thing of getting through with the background checks, presenting them to the Senate, and right. uh, and starting a date um, so all that let's just have a quick chuckle about that <laughs> and we can get into funny funny the uh <laughs>
3: I know. It is it's it would be comical, <laughs> but it's actually dangerous. And that's the thing that's so you know that just blows my mind about everything we've talked about here today. I mean, just from the from the point of view of the food and agriculture platform that you and I are interested in. I mean, never mind all yeah. the other issues that surround this presidency. But I mean that in itself, this is literally dangerous to the to the United States uh, you know, citizen. And yeah. you know, the fact that, you know, for instance, um, he doesn't even have uh he what did I read? I think it might have even been in Politico that he's – of over a 1,000 positions, he he has managed to fill something like 300, and then his attitude towards that is like, well, who cares? Those positions are probably redundant anyway. It doesn't matter. I mean – Exactly. You know, it's like it's – you know, you you hit your head with your hand. I mean, it's just – it's mind-blowing what's happening here. It's the kind of thing that makes me cry. But anyway, right now. but. (laughs)
4: So back back to Sonny and your question about what would Mikey do at the Food Safety and Inspection Service. Well, you know, one thing you have to understand about Sonny is that he was the governor of Georgia. And Georgia is the single biggest poultry-producing state. Right. And you don't get two terms in Georgia without being pretty friendly with that industry. That's right. And so... And, you know, also he was a kind of a, a, a small-time agribusinessman himself. He made, you know, he made a small fortune as a kind of fertilizer dealer. Yeah, fertilizer and, and grains so or something, he's, yeah. He's very tightly in that business. And, you know, of course, you know, after he left the Senate, I'm sorry, after he left he, um, the, governorship, the governorship, he started up an import-export or mm-hmm. basically an export business for agribusiness products. Right. And so, you know, he he's an agribusiness guy.
3: Yeah, he's deep in and the pocket so, there. Yeah, no question.
4: And so when you ask, you know, what's he going to do with the Food Safety Inspection Service, well, it's, he's probably going to put someone who is pretty industry-friendly Yeah, th- up there. Um, of course, we you know, we, we don't even have speculation on that yet because he's not been confirmed. But we, we're probably in a normal situation probably talking about this guy or that guy that had been floated, and we're not anywhere close to that. Right,
3: right. Although I did see something about a deputy secretary who was like deep in the hog business from North Carolina. And then I, I went back to look for that article and I couldn't find it because I had neglected to put well, it in my pocket. But um, I forget who that was. But that, I thought that gave a pretty clear indication of <laughs> yeah. of what his priorities then, are. You know,
4: they're, um, they're also floating this guy named Charles Herbster as a possible hmm. number two. In, and, and, you know, he's a whole another ball of wax. He's, um, you know, he... He's from Nebraska, and he's a he's a cattle guy. He's right. got a, a big cattle ranch, but the way he made his fortune is through a multi-level marketing business huh. that um, that you know basically markets a whole. He's you know the, the press usually says it's it's agrochemicals, and there is some of that, but it's also supplements, and you know it's just kind of a classic multi-level marketing thing where you know you sell. Where if I'm a rep of a company, that I get my five best friends to be reps too, and I make money every time they sell something, uh-huh. it's those like Amway. things <laughs> are let's just say very dubious.
3: Yeah, uh, very dubious. And,
4: uh, it, it's it's not certain that he's gonna he's gonna put Herbster in, but you know Herbster was his main ag advisor during the campaign. Mm. He um you know he, he he he's been he was floated for USDA director he was on that short list a couple times yeah um and so yeah yeah that's that's a disaster but you know i think just really briefly i think one of the big things speaking of poultry and the food safety inspection service you may remember that one of the really terrible controversies of the obama administration uh from my perspective and in terms of food policy was they really pushed um, the FSIS under Obama really pushed a plan to basically privatize the kill line, the inspection line of right the HEMP the, Act. Po- the poultry yeah. the poultry industry and there's also one for hogs. right and as part of that for poultry the uh, the proposal that they really pushed was that they were going to speed up the line mm-hmm. from 140 birds per minute to 170 birds per minute right. Um, when the consensus in if you talk to workers in the line or if you talk to people that look at worker safety or USDA inspectors, is already way too fast at 140. Right. Um, and in the end, because of um, outcry, um, the Obama administration went ahead and privatized the inspection line, but didn't um, allow for the speed up of the kill line. So it's still right. at 140. Right. But they did it in a way that is easily changed. Right. And so if the poultry industry decides under a President Trump and an Ag Secretary um, Purdue, that it wants that line sped, sped up, um, I, can, I can envision it happening with very little resistance.
3: Oh, me so too. That, that's
4: one major thing that I think we can see coming down the pike.
3: Yeah. And then the other thing that, because um, that, you wrote about uh, Waters of the United States, and actually I didn't include yes. that in my outline, but I, I do want to have a moment to talk about that um, before we take, sure. talk about SNAP and the Farm Bill, because that's how I want to wrap this up. Um, but the Waters of the United States regulation that um, that Obama put in, and you know, in the farm community, the agricultural community went nuts over this. And yes. you pointed out that it didn't really have an impact on farmers, and so I wanted to deconstruct what that was all about because the way I had read it was that farmers were angry because uh, it would suggest that you know they were they were saying well if a ditch on my on my farm you know becomes polluted with ag runoff then I could be subjected to all these fines and blah 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 and yet right. in fact as you pointed out in your article that was not the case so what what was that tempest in a teapot all about?
4: yeah <laughs> um to to me it was a really puzzling thing, because 'cause I've been hearing about this waters of the United States right? for a couple of years and I never uh dug into it um to my disgrace I should have been on that on top of that it it came down in twenty fifteen mm-hmm. and it's been um I noticed that it has been inflaming the farm press, yes the um the farm bureau. For a while. It's this huge deal. It's this huge EPA overreach. Right. It's going to be EPA inspectors coming to your farm. And I noticed that the environmental community wasn't really talking that much about it. Uh huh. And when when I looked into it, all that it was was there was a Supreme Court case back in 2006 that forced the EPA to better define what a waters of the U.S. is, what an what official water of the U.S. is under the Clean Water Act. Right. And so it, all it's doing is clarifying some gray areas in the Clean Water Act, uh, the, the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the Clean Water Act essentially exempts agriculture.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're so, exempted from know, almost ask, all regulations.
4: How is there a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> every year driven by ag runoff But we have a Clean Water Act. And the answer to that, and I think it's a great question, and the answer to that question is because ag is basically exempt. And so when EPA was in the rulemaking process under Obama, when it was defining this, it was very carefully hewing to uh, the Supreme Court decision and uh, the, the opinion of one of the justices. I think it was Justice Kennedy. And so it comes out with this rule, and agriculture completely melts down. But when you look into it, at every step of the way, they repeat over and over again that agriculture is exempt.
3: So, what do you um, think the purpose of of the press was of the of the farming press? Because that's where you read all of this outrage from. Yeah. Uh, what was their purpose in in creating this uh, bugaboo? This was a straw man. This this didn't happen. This wasn't affecting their constituency. Well, so, what was it just to? propel anti-Obama sentiment, anti-regulation sentiment. uh, You know, I I really didn't understand that.
4: Yeah, so my reporting, you know, I couldn't figure it out quite. Like, the Farm Bureau wouldn't really talk to me. They just kind of pointed me to their materials. Mm. And some of the people in the the green, you know, in the green groups would speculate, but off the record. Right. Um, But what it seems like is that the way the rule was written if you pretend a way or imagine a way that the farm exemptions Mm -hmm. then you and also you think everything is a wetland because really it's mostly about wetlands, right and you know those are very specific areas but if you do those two things it can seem like a bunch of ditches in your farm are suddenly going to be declared waters to the U.S. and you might have to pull a permit with Um, and so the I think in that community they're so adverse to regulation yeah. that even having that language, despite the despite the exemptions, made them freak out. Um, and I think that you know, to me, the significance of the executive order that Trump uh, issued last week that was that he's making the EPA go through the process again to come up with a new waters of the U.S. rule. Um, the significance of Trump's action is that here is this guy. Who is cracking down the labor force, as we discussed? Who is messing with foreign markets with his trade wars and is tearing up the trade deals, which is also bad for big ag. Yep. But he's delivered this big gift. <laughs> um, he's going to pull. The, he's going to take the EPA off of your back, mm-hmm. and it is such an empty gesture because the EPA is not in his back. Right. Um, and so I think that politically. You know, I think politically it whips the base of the Farm Bureau up into a frenzy. Yeah, it gets everyone riled up, and then it gets, lets them declare victory. So, if you're a Farm Bureau person, you're a dues-paying member, and you got a you know three thousand acre corn and soybean farm in Illinois. The Farm Bureau has just delivered you this massive victory, right? Uh, and the Farm the Farm Bureau can hold it as a trophy, but uh, the whole thing to me is just low comedy. It's just. Mm you know, completely manipulate, And some people might even believe it. um, But, and I think a lot of rank-and-file farmers do believe it. They are very worried and scared, but it's complete manipulation by... The Farm Bureau and the Farm Press is what well, right. is what I think.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, that was my takeaway from your article, for sure. And, you know, I was thinking that, you know, the farmers had it. They had a beef and, and here was their beef. And then it turns out they're not even subject to this regulation. So what the hell? Yes. I mean,
4: yeah. <laughs> really. It much more impacts construction. Right right um, and, and other the, you know, the, the, the case that triggered the whole thing was a guy a guy wanted to dredge a wetland and build a shopping mall uh. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, and, <laughs> and i think that kind of you know brilliant scheme is is going to is going to have a lot more problems than actual farming from yeah the waters to the
3: us yeah well let's let's turn our attention to um to the the, the major issue um which is the fact that the, the farm bill is going to be renegotiated or rewritten uh for 2018 right and um, yeah. assuming that Sonny purdue is um is in fact approved as our new secretary of agriculture uh he will be in charge of supplemental nutrition assistance programs otherwise known as food stamps and um and what do you think that's going to mean for uh low income populations and what other kinds of changes do you think he is likely to push for?
4: Well, I mean, I think the key players for the Farm Bill and SNAP, I mean, it, you know, some administrations come up with a draft of the Farm Bill and send it to Congress. Some don't. Like, Obama didn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that. He he kind of reacted to the legislation that was coming down the pike. And, you know, mm-hmm. who knows what Trump is going to do? But I think the key players to look at in this fight are your, basically your Paul Ryan's and your Mitch McConnell's, Right. People in Congress, and we know that Paul Ryan has been itching to cut SNAP forever. Um, And there's all sorts of of nasty things you can do with it that don't involve cuts. Like there's programs where if a school district, if a school has a certain percentage of people on the free lunch program, then they'll make it universal in that school to take the stigma of. To take the stigma out of it right. just to make it easier, to make it less bureaucratic. You know, if eighty percent of people are, are getting it or, or whatever the number is, it's something like that. Yeah. Then you just make it universal. And it's been it's proven to be very effective, it's cost effective. For sure. More people eat lunch, um, nutrition gets better. Yeah. And the Republicans were really trying to kill that. Um in the last one, but I just went off on a tangent of school lunches instead of the half. But that's sorry. okay sorry. because sorry school, that. I mean
3: I should but have included school lunch stuff in the like question. That with I mean, nap. yeah,
4: yeah, it, it's a different program, but it's a similar mentality. Yes. the same people lined up against it. Yeah, and so you know if you've got President Trump and Mitch McConnell leads the Senate and uh, Paul Ryan leads the House, I, I think that there's potential for all sorts of mayhem to happen with cyber policy, no doubt. Um, The Farm Bill in general is a major black box to me because, you know, the old coalitions, the the way that it worked forever and ever, and it started to break down the last couple of Farm Bills, but you had, no one cared about it except for the um, people in Congress in urban areas who wanted a strong SNAP program, wanted a strong food assistance program. And people in rural areas with a big farming industry. Right, who wanted the wanted, subsidies. Yeah, they wanted their subsidies and, and, and their farm programs. Mm-hmm. And so what they would do is they would cut deals and say, okay, I'll vote for this if you vote for that. Right. And that's how we got farm bills uh, until pretty recently. And those politics have broken down. You've got, um, you know, powerful right-wing forces like the Heritage Foundation, mm-hmm. which is, I think, pretty... You know, in, in pretty deep with Trump, and also pretty tight with Paul Ryan. They want to cut farm. Uh, they don't. They want to cut not only hunger programs, but they want to cut farm programs. Yeah. And Paul Ryan is sympathetic to that, even though he's from a midwestern state. Right. And so, you know, it's getting really hard for me to see how we get a farm bill at all. I'm sure we will uh, somehow, but the old coalitions. That used to um, bring them forth Are breaking down Uh, And you know meanwhile we've got Really low corn and soybean prices Low Um, dairy prices Anything goes Uh, I'm really not sure what's going to happen
3: Ooh, well, plenty of plenty of fodder for future conversations, Tom. Um I want to I wanted to ask you one thing. I wanted to draw your attention to one thing. Did, I don't know if you listened to my joys and sorrows segment about the EPA about the letter. Did you see Chuck Abbott's? I
4: did. Yes, yes. And that about, letter from uh, what's I her name, Marianne Crawford?
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, please please for once in your life stand up for what's right.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> that blew my freaking mind. So, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I'm starting me to wonder too. maybe Scott Pruitt um, should f- dismantle the EPA if it's literally just a shill for, you know, uh, or, or just a cover for, I don't know. I mean, I don't mean that for real, but you well, know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, gross, yeah. like really gross, people.
4: Ugh. Yeah, and you know what? Um, that story is uh, so interesting, and it's got so many twists yeah. that I, 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 I may dive into a little bit, but one thing that's well, interesting so. about the toxicologist who wrote that e- uh, who wrote that email yeah. was do you know that she was dying of cancer when she wrote it
3: no i did not yeah oh, my she word. was
4: literally at the en- you know at the end of of a cancer bout oh no yeah and so she she is deceased
3: yeah and so she um, had nothing to lose by writing that letter which is why it was so blunt undoubtedly yeah. right oh yeah so yeah. i don't
4: think she was given a damn yeah. uh, about niceties yeah. um but I would like to report it out a little bit more. Oh, I hope you will. And and just get some context for it. But um but yeah, it's uh you know, it's a super intense situation. Um I I think I think there is still an open debate about glyph not that glyphosate, I think you're right that the debate about whether this particular substance um triggers cancer um, I think it's closed. But I think the debate that's open that needs to be had is at what levels and at what levels are we exposed to it mm-hmm. through farming and who's exposed to it through farming. Um, these are questions that, that, that have to be answered.
5: Right. Because to my uh, knowledge. What, you know, the, the,
4: the, the IARC, that international body right. that's under the U.N., um, <laughs> their finding was that this is a, a carcinogen. Yeah. But they didn't rule on whether it the way that it's used is you know is actually causing cancer and I think that's where the debate has to go and I think that the that's not a debate that agribusiness wants to have I don't think no um but it's also a debate that the the green community is you know maybe a little bit um mudding the waters on that um if something is a carcinogen, but I'm not being exposed to it at a level that makes it carcinogenic, then, you know, maybe it's okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I say that from a very cautious and, and industry-critical uh, viewpoint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's also true that, you know, most of the herbicides in the market we know are more toxic and worse. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um,
3: That's and, why organics so are increasingly I want to say, let's
4: you know, instead of debating which toxic substance to put on our fields, let's think about farming practices that minimize their use. Yeah. And, you know, that's also a debate the industry doesn't want to have.
3: Well, on that note, my darling, unfortunately, I, I could go on and on with you, Tom, but I, I'm not sure listeners could stand another moment of <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I know, it's pretty.
3: Oh, God. But you'll come back soon, time. I hope. Um, so uh, tell people where they can learn more about Tom Philpot, and uh, we'll wrap it up. So you have a website. I know that.
4: Yes, you can find me on uh, Twitter at, at Tom Philpott. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Andrew Jones. I do have a website. It's called tomphilpott.net, I believe. And you can find me on the Bite Podcast That's and right. The Secret Ingredient, as Katie so, so generously mentioned earlier. You betcha, homie. Check all that out.
3: <laughs> Check it all out, folks. You won't find a better uh, a better companion for your journey to knowledge about the agricultural industry than Tom Philpott. So with that, I will say thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. And thanks again to my sponsor, Chef's Collaborative, of which I am a proud card-carrying member. And uh, thanks, as always, to my engineer. And we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.